0: Take your Bibles, if you haven't already, and turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Today, as we continue our series through Luke's Gospel, we have made it to a very familiar passage. The parable of the Good Samaritan, as it's often called. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, we will read through to verse 37. You can find that on page 869 of our cart Bibles. Luke chapter 10, beginning today in verse 25, and reading through verse 37. Verse 37. Now, before we read God's Word, please join me again in prayer as we ask the Lord's blessing upon our study today. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see and hear, inwardly mark and learn, that we would know more of Christ our Savior. We pray that you would give us eyes to see words of eternal life, even as we hear them from the One who is the way and the truth and the life. Help us to rejoice in Christ, we pray in his name, amen. You're now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself and he said to him you've answered correctly do this and you will live but he desiring to justify himself said to jesus and who is my neighbor and jesus replied a man was going down from jerusalem to jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it uh, together today. This past October, I made a mistake, and my mistake was booking an anniversary dinner at a restaurant that Sarah and I have already been to before. Now, the mistake was not just that I had booked a repeat, I wasn't in trouble because I, I Uh, I didn't have any new ideas. The, The problem was that I booked a restaurant not just at a place that we had been to, but I booked a restaurant that we had been to and that we loved. Oh, it was good. One of our favorite meals of all time, it was one of these meals that was so good that eight years later, we still remember what we ordered that first time. We remember almost every bite, it seems. What a wonderful meal, and it was this tiny little place, and we felt like when we walked in the, in the door, it was this kind of thing that we had discovered, this, this hidden gem right there on, on Newbury Street that everybody else knew about, and we just didn't know about. And the experience was so good that we have, we have raved about it, and if you have spoken to us about our favorite restaurants, you've probably gotten a recommendation from us. And anybody who was even mildly interested, and probably many of you who weren't interested, we've told you, you've, you've got to go to this place. It's wonderful. And so I suggested that we should go back and relive that first experience. We should try to do it all over again. We should take the tea into the city, even though we didn't really need to, but that's what we did the first time, so let's take the tea in, and let's uh, order a nice dinner, let's prepare ourselves for for a nice slow dinner with coffee and dessert afterwards, and it will be wonderful, it will be the second greatest gastronomic experience of our entire lives, second only to the first time. So I booked the restaurant, and so we went, and we ordered, and we ate, it was okay, like like, I probably wouldn't go back. It was, it was all right. It wasn't bad. It wasn't, it wasn't a terrible experience, but it was just kind of ho-hum. And that's the danger, really, of, of trying to go back to and relive some of those memories that we have that are so beloved, so cherished as something like that. Well, there are dangers as well that come with trying to study passages that we all know and all love as well. When we study a passage that we love, we face the danger of reading into the text what we remember about it and not actually what it's trying to tell us. We come to it with this freight of memories of hearing this Uh, study, maybe in Sunday school on a flannel graph board, maybe from someone who had a big bowl of candy that at the end of every class we got to pick our favorite and we have uh, these these nostalgic memories about the parable of the Good Samaritan and and we're not paying attention to the clues that are actually there that we would normally read because we've got so many expectations about what we're going to find when we get there. And then again there's the danger of being disappointed when we read it again and we realize that's not what I remembered (laughs) actually, that's not that's not what I thought was there at all. And so we are embarking on a dangerous study this morning. <laughs> there are not many parables as well-known and well-loved as this one. Maybe the parable, parable of the prodigal son, maybe that's, uh, that's up there. But, but this one is, is right there at the top, if not at the number one position. This is the kind of parable, this kind of story in the New Testament that everybody knows, even if you're not a believer. Even if your neighbors haven't ever read Luke's gospel, they at least associate the idea of a good Samaritan with some sort of uh, do gooder who just shows up in the right time and, and the right place. We had our presbytery meeting uh, yesterday in the campus of MIT, and there hanging on the wall was It was a sign telling you about a good Samaritan law that if you saw something and and were able to help someone that you wouldn't be held accountable if anything bad happened to them further. It was a sort of reassurance that if you you reach out to to give compassion and kindness to somebody in need, that's a good Samaritan. Everybody knows the terminology. And because this passage is so familiar, we need to be careful to hear what it's actually teaching us and not just what we want to hear from it. Actually, I think that's a good summary of the little few verses that open uh, this parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is being confronted by a lawyer, not a a secular lawyer, but a, a religious lawyer, an expert in God's Torah, his instruction, his law. And this lawyer is so familiar with the words of God's instruction that he seems to have ceased to understand the import that they're supposed to have on his life. He's so familiar with these things that he no longer actually listens to what God's word is demanding of him. Instead, he treats, it seems, God's word as some sort of memory that he can he can tuck away when he doesn't need it and he can bring it out anytime he wants to relive that that fuzzy feeling of being a religious person. He can feel good. No, I've I've got God's law. I remember it. I've written it on my heart, but it seems that it's never showing up in, in his hands, in his understanding. He's reading this scripture with a sense of self-satisfaction, not with the self-examination that it ought to produce. And so as we read these verses, I want to caution us all that we need to avoid the danger of our own expectations. We need to avoid the danger of failing to hear what God's Word is actually telling us because of what we think it might be telling us or what we remember that it told us uh, at one time. There are three spiritual truths that I hope to examine with you and open up through this passage. The first spiritual truth that we find in this passage is that God's law demands our perfect love. That's our first point today. God's law demands our perfect love. Love Now, the passage, as I've mentioned, uh, opens with a lawyer. He comes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus the best possible question for the worst possible reason. Take a look at verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question. That's a great question, actually. That is the most important question that any of us can ever ask. It is the question that recognizes that this life is soon to be over. And at the end of this life, when it ends, there will be either judgment or glory for all people. On that great day of the Lord, humanity will be separated like wheat and chaff. And some will be received by the Lord into everlasting life and others into everlasting death. That is our spiritual Uh, end. It is either in perpetual living or perpetual dying. That's how Scripture speaks of it. In fact, this is exactly what we've heard from Jesus over the last two weeks. If you've been with us, you've you've heard him speak of these realities. He he spoke of this judgment to those cities that did not believe in him and did not receive him in Galilee. He said, it would be more bearable in the judgment for Sodom than for the Galilean towns where he was rejected. And then he turned to his disciples and he said, Rejoice, for your names are written in heaven. Jesus has been teaching about eternal truths, about salvation and judgment, and this lawyer comes with the right question at the right time, the best possible question, the question of what does God require of me that I can become a partaker of the glory that he has for his people? It's the best question he could have asked. And he asked it for the absolute worst reasons. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. Now, actually, we did this yesterday <laughs> at our presbytery meeting. We put Andrew to the test, and, and, and another man, actually. We, we put them up front, uh, and they stood there while lots of pastors and elders asked theological questions that they already knew the answer to. It wasn't that we were trying to learn uh, some new truth. but We were trying to learn what was in Andrew. We tried to learn his, his understanding of these things, his, his preparation for ministry. It was, a, it was a helpful test. It was an examination that's meant to encourage him and, and affirm and to see how he's moving along in his preparation for ministry. That's what we did yesterday. We put Andrew to the test, but this is not the kind of test that's being applied to Jesus. If you have the King James Version in front of you, Uh, the language is helpful here. It says that a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him. That's more like it. Not just tested him, not just examined his theological understanding. This was not meant to be helpful. This was a hand grenade disguised as a theological question. This lawyer was laying a trap. I think he probably hoped that one of two things would happen. Either... Uh, that Jesus would say something that was so radical that he could be written off because he was just this crazy heretic. He would come with just this completely new doctrine that had nothing to do with everything they understood about uh, God and his law from the past. Maybe he he was going to say something so radical that he could be written off and done away with, or maybe he would say something so vanilla that it was just kind of redundant. I mean, if he's just teaching the same thing that the lawyers and the scribes and the Pharisees and the scholars and the priests and the Levites and everybody else and all the rabbis in Israel are teaching, who needs another itinerant teacher? And so either he could be disregarded as dangerous or thrown aside as redundant. It was a win-win situation for the lawyer. It was a trap he was hoping that Jesus would fall into. But one thing is certain, this man was not coming, asking this great question, seeking to learn how he could partake of eternal life. He came to put Jesus to the test. He came hoping that by this theological question, Jesus Christ would be condemned by the people. Now notice how Jesus deals with the trap. He challenges this lawyer to give his legal question, and that's an important point there. This is a legal question, a legal trap, and Jesus challenges him to give his legal question a legal answer. Verse 26, what is written in the law, he says. How do you read it? In fact, of all people, it was this lawyer who ought to have known the answer to his own question, and Jesus Understands that. This lawyer had made it his entire life's work to understand the answer to this question, to be able to articulate the answer to this question. This question and this answer really were all over Jewish society. This is the sort of thing that was read every day in the synagogues, it was recited every morning by observant Jews. Probably, as this man asked this question of Jesus, he had on his forehead his phylactery. You know what those are, right? Those little, those little black leather boxes that observant Jews will tie around their forehead. And inside that calfskin box is a copy of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. And each morning they put on their phylacteries. And there is a leather strap that winds down behind their head and over their shoulder, and they begin to wind it around their arm and down to their fingers, and they begin to recite, Shema Israel, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. This man knew the answer to his question. The greatest commandment. What must I do? You must love the Lord your God Almighty. You must love him from the very depths of your soul. You must love him with every fiber of your being. And the second commandment is just like it. And so to Deuteronomy chapter 6, he adds Leviticus chapter 19. Also, you must love your neighbor as yourself. That was a good answer. And Jesus told another lawyer, another scribe who asked him this same question, that that, that was the perfect answer. Jesus said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. They are the summary of what we sometimes call the two tables of God's law. How we ought to approach the Lord and how we ought to approach our fellow man. They're summarized in the Ten Commandments, and they're broken down in in just that way. Commandments 1 through 4 talk about our approach to the Lord. You shall have no other gods. You shall make no graven image. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath day. And then the rest of the commandments, the other six, deal with our approach to our fellow man. Honor your father and mother. No murder, no adultery, no thievery, no lying, no covetousness. And you can take those ten commandments and their two divisions and you could add to them all the other 603 explicit commands in the Old Testament law and you could still take the whole shooting match and put them together under the category of the two answers that this man has just given. What does the Lord your God require of you but to love him and to love your neighbor? It's the perfect answer. And Jesus said, that's right. That's what you have to do if you want to have eternal life. Now before you get upset that this sounds a little bit too much like legalism, remember that that is exactly the point, actually. This man came laying a trap. A legal trap, a a trap according to God's law. Well, what is it, Jesus? What would you say? How would you exegete the whole of the Old Testament? What does God require? And it's a question of what shall I do? Do you notice that's commandment language? You shall, you shall not. What shall I do, he says. Not, Not what can I do, not what am I able to do, but what does God require of me? What does God's law say I have to do if I want to be judged by that standard? If I'm going to live in righteousness before God, if I'm going to be counted worthy of receiving a life from his hand, what must I do? It's a legal question. And Jesus gives him a legal answer. God's law requires your perfect love. Perfect love. If you want to be judged by God's standard, that is the standard. It is perfection. It is flawless love. Love for the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, with absolutely every element of your being. Love for your neighbor just as yourself, treating others as you would have them treat you in all things. And in fact, when Jesus finally comes back to answer that first question in verse 28, he intensifies it. Because the language in verse 25 seems to be that the the lawyer is saying, what is the thing I have to do? That once it's done, I receive eternal life. And Jesus gives him a continuous imperative. We could translate verse, uh, verse 29. He said to him, you have answered correctly. Keep on doing this and you will live. That's the standard. Perfect love is not a one-time transaction. It is the every minute, every hour requirement of every day of our lives. If we will be justified by the law of God, we must love perfectly at all times and in all ways. No wonder Peter said in Acts chapter 15 that the law is a burden, a yoke, he said, that neither we nor our forefathers have been able to bear. No wonder Paul said in Romans chapter 3 that by the works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight. Why? Not because there's something wrong with the law. There's something wrong with us. No human being will be justified by the law in God's sight because his standard is as perfect as he is his law requires flawless love and how can sinners like us full of self-deception and full of self-centeredness hope to live up to this perfect standard I mean I love my wife and all but I still want to take the biggest piece of leftover birthday cake and put it on my plate instead of hers and you think I can love you people like I love myself (laughs) and you can't do it either Oh, we can put on a show sometimes. We can do what C.S. Lewis would call a mercenary love. We can can love so that we would be seen loving so that others would say, Oh, he's very loving, isn't he? And it's a self-love. It's a love for the other so that we would be loved in return. We We can't really love selflessly the way God is calling us to love. Not a love that seeks our own, but a love that seeks the lover, the beloved. And here came this lawyer speaking these beautiful words about love and neighborliness. And he used it all as a cover for this ambush that he was laying for his fellow Jew. Oh, let's talk about love, (laughs) he said as he tried to put him to the test. Makes you wonder if he'd ever read the words that, that were so familiar to him. The words that were literally right before his eyes, on his head, and in front of his face. And here's the first spiritual truth we learn in this passage. It is that God's law demands our perfect love. The second one is like it. The second truth is that even though God's law demands our perfect love, that our sin would rather settle for something less. Our sin would rather settle For something less. You can see it happen in verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, "Mm, Who is my neighbor? (laughs) Hold on a minute. You know the impulse. By now, this man is hanging by his own rope. Not only had Jesus made him answer his own foundational question, but he made him answer it in such a way that unless he can find some way to mitigate the demands of God's perfect law, he's the one who's going to be condemned by his own trap. And so he decides, well, let's pause the debate a little bit. Let's define our terms, because we never did that at the beginning. Let's let's decide who is it. There's got to be somebody, right? There's got to be someone who fits into the category of non-neighbor. I've got to be able to split it out. I've got my neighbors over here, I've got my non-neighbors over there, and I've got to love these. Okay, let's, let's shrink it down a little bit. Let's not worry about this. It's a technicality, but who, who's my neighbor, really? Let's, let's talk about that. This was a live debate, actually, in Jewish culture. It had to do with the controversy over how to interpret that passage from Leviticus 19 that he just quoted. He said, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But Leviticus 19, verse 18, in its entirety says this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against a son of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. There you go. That's the controversy. It seems that Leviticus 19:18 actually defines neighbor a little bit more narrowly than, than maybe Jesus might. Uh, In this passage. That was what they said at least. And so so the Jews were wrapped up. And well what does it mean to be a neighbor? Well it it means it seems to be a son of your own people. To be a fellow Israelite. So there's the first category of in group and out group. Maybe maybe it's just our Israelite brothers and sisters that we have to love. And and others would would define these terms even more narrowly. Depending on how fastidious you were. Say the the Pharisees. uh, the, The purity group in Israel would say not only to be my neighbor do you have to be an Israelite but you've got to be a pious Israelite you've got to have the same scruples you've got to have the same standards you've got to live just like I do and then I can accept you as my neighbor and then there were the Essenes you've heard of the Essenes you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls out there in the desert these were the radicals who lived apart from society these were the Essenes the separatists and they lived out there and And they were their own sort of sect of Judaism. And they had a saying. And the saying was that you must love all the sons of light. And you must hate all the sons of darkness. Now by sons of darkness, the Essenes meant anyone who is not an Essene. Not only do you have to love your neighbors, but hate those who are not like you. Now let me give you a spoiler alert. This is the wrong interpretation of Leviticus 19. Okay? Okay. I hate to, hate to break it to you. All they had to do is to keep on reading in Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, verse 33, says this. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God." You see, this is the wrong interpretation. You can't simply say, well, they hear the, here's the in-group and here's the out-group and I've got to love these and maybe it's good actually if I, if I hate those other people. That's not how it was meant to be, but it actually was pretty tidy, wasn't it? It's a helpful little uh, distinction if you can say, you know what, I, I've got these people that I've got to love and maybe it's actually good if I have these other people that I'm supposed to hate. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus told the people, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, Now we know who's saying that. It was the religious teachers, it was the rabbis and the Pharisees and the lawyers of the day who said, here is who you have to love, but everybody else, uh, they don't fit into that category. It was a way of limiting the scope of God's demands, wasn't it? It's a way of avoiding this charge of guilty that hangs over all of us who have not lived up to this standard of perfect love that God gives us in his law. So the lawyer attempted to manage God's law, and he did it by minimizing it. Let's draw the circle a little closer. He, attempting to justify himself, said, but who is my neighbor? That's how our sin works, too. We do it all the time. Jesus says, you ought to give to the one who begs from you. You ought to not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And there's no footnote in that passage, and yet we say, well, I would do that, but I'm not sure that they're going to do the right thing if I give them the money. I don't know what they're going to spend it on, and so we we narrow a little bit the, the commands of the Lord. Paul gives us a direct moral command. He says, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with your neighbor. That's how the church is built up. We we confront one another every once in a while with the sins that we see, with the things that, that are deteriorating the people of God. Paul says, you ought to speak the truth with one another. And we go, I, you know, nobody wants unsolicited advice. I don't want to meddle. I, don't, I, you know, I just don't want to do that. And so we minimize it. God tells us in his word, do you not know that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God? And we, desiring to justify ourselves, say, well, what what constitutes sexual immorality anyway? Let's change the terms a little bit. Let's make it more palatable for ourselves, more palatable for our culture. What qualifies? That's how our sin works. We try to exchange God's standard for one that we've created. We try to convince ourselves that we are only responsible for a small portion of what the Lord demands of us. God's law demands our perfect love, but our sin would rather settle for something smaller. And that brings us to our final spiritual truth. And the real reason, actually, for the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells us this parable to make sure that we don't go on thinking that eternal life is something that we can just reach out and grab on our own terms. Not something that we can say, well, what do I have to do today? Okay, take the box and I'll make it through my day, and at the end of the day, I'll, I'll get this gift that, in a sense, I've earned because I've done all the right things. We can't reach out and take it with our minimizing, compromising, unloving hands. This parable is meant to bring us to the realization, and here's our third point that eternal life can only come as a gift of God's mercy. Eternal life can only come as a gift of God's mercy. I know that you know the parable, but don't ignore the fact that Jesus doesn't tell this parable in response to the question, What must I do to be saved? He tells this this parable in in response to the question, who is my neighbor? That makes a difference. Because he tells this parable at precisely the moment that this legalist is trying to wriggle his way out from underneath the full weight of God's law. He says that he knows it and he loves it with all of his heart and soul and mind, and yet when the demands of God's holiness are pressed a little bit too closely, then he tries to break free on a technicality, and the parable is Jesus' way of saying, ah, no you don't. Not so fast. A certain man, he says, went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now in those days, the road between those cities was a good place to go if you were looking to get bugged. It was like that dark stretch of that inner city that you know you never go to between the hours of dusk and dawn. It's just not the sort of thing that you do, but many people had to travel this road. and It was a 17-mile stretch down this slope, covered by by rocky outcliffs on, on both sides. There were ledges where there, it was perfect for ambushing travelers, and even up until the 19th century, this road was still called the Way of Blood, because this is the sort of thing that happened on the way from Jerusalem to Jericho. It happened to this man the way it happened to many others, that he was... He was brutalized, and he was burglarized, and he was left for dead in a pool of his own blood. And then along comes a priest. He's he's probably still basking in the afterglow of his yearly stint in the temple pouring out offerings and giving sacrifices and slaying animals and whatever else the priest had to do he's probably still uh, serving with the afterglow of that sort of thing and here he comes down the road and he breathes this sigh of relief that he sees him far enough away that he has time to move to the opposite side of the road and just keep on walking let's not let's not even consider it and then comes a Levite he too had probably been serving in the temple helping, uh, playing instruments or chopping wood or carrying water, whatever it is the, the priests need help with to, to move along the cultic religion of Israel at that time. And he was, he was coming down and he actually tells us he comes right to the place where the poor man fell. He came to the place and he saw him, but he too went on the other side. Now this is the place where modern scholars like to start wondering about why was it that these men didn't stop to help? Maybe, they tell us, maybe they were worried that this man wasn't half dead, but he was really dead. Like all the way dead. And if they touched him, if they tried to do anything, they would be ceremonially unclean for up to seven days. And there's this whole ritual and there's all this stuff you have to do in order to cleanse yourself if you touch a dead body in Israel. So maybe it was this cleanliness issue. Or maybe if they stopped to help him, maybe the, the robbers are just waiting there. Maybe they left the man as bait. Seeing who would stop and seeing who would help so they could come in and and find another victim and thump their heads just for good measure too. And, And now the thing is, Jesus doesn't tell us that they were afraid of uncleanliness. He doesn't tell us that they were afraid of the robbers because neither one of those things is the point. The point is that these men didn't stop because these men didn't care. Because they did not love their neighbor the way they ought to have loved their neighbor. It was an indictment of the kind of religion that says, maybe I can do some special duty for God and I'll get a pass on all those weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. It was an indictment on the kind of religion that tries to play stump the rabbi with theological questions all the while harboring malice and resentment in your heart for Jesus. And then the real punchline comes in verse 33. But but a Samaritan. Now you know, I'm sure, you remember something of the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. We saw it just a few weeks ago, well, probably back in December now, or November, when uh, Jesus was traveling and he was rejected by a village of the Samaritans, and James and John, the sons of thunder, uh, immediately, because this is the sort of thing you do if you're uh, rejected by Samaritans, they said, Lord, do you want us just to call down fire and destroy the whole city? They're just Samaritans, who cares? Is that what we should do? If there was anyone in the world that a first century Jew classified as not my neighbor, it was a Samaritan. And there was this long and, and violent history to, uh, to prove the statement that John shares in his gospel, chapter 4, that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You can go back to the Old Testament. You can, you can read something about it. It really, uh, it was rooted in the animosity that, that came about after the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. God uh, sent the northern tribes who had broken off into their own kingdom, established their kingdom there uh, with the capital in Samaria, and God sold them into exile because of their sins of idolatry, and the Assyrians came in and ransacked and killed most of the people, and those who were left, they carried off to Assyria and to other places, but there were a few who remained in the land to till it and to work it and and to get a revenue and they began to intermarry and to mix their families and their religion with the Assyrians who were left. They continued to spiral into some form of idolatry that looked like a cross between Judaism and paganism. And so Kent Hughes says that the Jews saw the Samaritans, as he says, compromising mongrels. Actually, they used to be Israelites. They were their uh, brothers in the flesh, their kinsmen, according to Abraham. Except they had lost that defining characteristic that all Jews were supposed to have, their, their distinction from all the rest of the nations, their, their ethnic purity and also their religious purity, and they began to intermingle. And that defining characteristic was gone, so they were seen as, as religious and ethnic half-breeds. And then when the southern tribes of Judah were taken into exile and returned, guess who it was that that rejected and opposed the building of the temple in Jerusalem? It was those in Samaria. In 128 BC, a Jewish militia traveled north from Jerusalem and they destroyed the Samaritan temple that was on Mount Gerizim. Just about 20 years before Jesus spoke this parable, a group of Samaritans managed to sneak into the temple and they scattered human bones in it, right in the middle of the week of Passover. And so the entire temple had to be declared unclean, everybody had to be sent home, and there was no Passover festival that week. And so there was this animosity. And you could add all of this origin of this divide with with skirmishes and squabbles and all these these violent attacks that happened between Jews and Samaritans. And by Jesus' day, the last word that any Jew associated with the Samaritan was the word neighbor. Neighbor. They were the very definition of an enemy. Samaritans were viewed as perpetually and ceremonially unclean. The rabbis taught that anyone who eats the bread of a Samaritan is just like somebody who eats uh, swine flesh. In many synagogues, the people prayed a prayer every day that ended with a petition that said, Oh Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. That's a lot of background. I realize that. But I give that to you just so you would understand that no Jew considered any Samaritan his neighbor. He was only his enemy. If there is anybody who could be hated without a second thought, it was a Samaritan. But Jesus says it was the Samaritan, at least in his parable, that did what none of those upstanding Jewish travelers would do. You remember the compassion. He came and he saw and he... He bound up his wounds and he put the man on his own animal so that the Samaritan man had to walk however far it was to the inn that they found where he kept him and probably stayed up late into the night watching him and caring for him. And then the next day, and as he had to leave, he, he not only spent his time but spent his own money and gave his own promise that, that he would come back and see that the man was healed and, and he was able to recoup and to rehab. So we need to ask the question, Why did Jesus bring the Samaritan into his parable? Why the Samaritan? Of all people. Was it just to add a little bit of dramatic tension to this story that Jesus wanted to tell? Was it just to give us some inspiring example that we can follow? Well, there's that. Yeah, there's some of that. Jesus ended by telling this, uh, this lawyer, and I think he's telling us as well, you go and do likewise. Here's an example that you should follow. Francis Schaeffer said, Christians are not to love their believing brothers to the exclusion of their non-believing fellow men. That is ugly, he says. We are to have the example of the Good Samaritan consciously in mind at all times. So yes, we ought to come away from the Good Samaritan convinced that we are called to treat all people with compassion. And it doesn't matter how unlike us they may look. It doesn't even matter if their religion is different than ours. It doesn't mean that we have to have a worship service together, but we need to look at the needs of those around us and realize that they're not so undifferent than our own needs. And see that their problems are not so different from our problems. So Jesus does call us to go and do likewise. That's why one of the reasons Jesus taught the parable. But why did he teach the parable with a Samaritan? Not just the story, but why this particular character? Why did he make the hero of the story somebody whose very existence gave hives to all the Jews who heard him say that word, a Samaritan? (sighs) Jesus told this parable with a Samaritan because he meant it to be a rebuke. He meant it to be a rebuke to everybody who, like this lawyer, thinks that they can handle God's law on their own terms. Those who think that we can take God's standard and we can shrink it to something that's maybe manageable for us to keep. And if we take God's standards and we make it a little bit lighter, maybe we can work our way into salvation. Jesus told this parable with a Samaritan to tell us that we don't get to define the demands of God's law. God's law comes to you with a perfection and with a completeness that would boggle your mind if you even took a minute to really plumb the depths of what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. Can you even comprehend what it means to to begin to love other people, other people around you, your neighbors, whoever they may be, even if they don't look like you or sound like you or live like you or dress like you? Could you imagine what it really means to love them as you love yourself? Dale Ralph Davis puts it well. He says, the good Samaritan is bad news. The good Samaritan is bad news for those who want to justify themselves. The Good Samaritan means that Paul was right, that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. And that means that if we will have eternal life, we're not going to get it on our own. It must come as a gift of God's mercy. Verse 29 says, that the lawyer asked this second question as a means of justifying himself. I think that's the key to understanding this passage. Justify, that's one of those big, expansive Bible words that we expect to show up all over the New Testament. It shows up only five times in Luke's Gospel. Four of those have to do with the way that Pharisees and Sadducees And lawyers and scribes fail to enter the kingdom of God because they're focused on what they can do rather than what they can receive from the Lord. Almost every occurrence in Luke. It shows up here, of course, but it also shows up back in chapter 7, verse 29. There, Luke said that everyone who received John's baptism of repentance justified God. That is, they agreed with what God said about them. What was John's repentance saying about them? You can't do it on your own. You can't fulfill the law of God. What you need is to repent and to receive eternal life as a gift of God's mercy, not as something you can secure for yourself. It says everybody else who received that baptism justified God, but not the Pharisees and the lawyers. He says they rejected God's purpose for themselves, having not been baptized, refusing to say, oh, no, 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 there's something that I can't do for myself. It shows up the next time in chapter 16, verse 15. Jesus told the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. What does it mean to justify yourself before men? wants to have that mercenary love, isn't it? to love so that others will look at us and say, oh, they're very loving, aren't they? <laughs> they really know what God requires. They're really very pious people. And Jesus says, God knows their hearts. And Try to make yourselves look good before men. That's fine, but that won't get you very far. And then this word shows up for the last time in chapter 18. Chapter 18, you may remember, Jesus says that there were two men who went up to a temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, loved to recite all the things he had done to inherit eternal life. Standing by himself, he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, (laughs) extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up his eyes to heaven But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus gives the summary. He says, I tell you, this man, that is the tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified. What did the man receive for all of his doing of God's work? Well, nothing. Because he can't do it perfectly, and he can't fulfill all of these demands, and he can't love the way that God calls us to love, and that means that eternal life is not something we can gain for ourselves, but it's only something we can receive from God's gracious hand. As we recognize that there is one who has loved perfectly. who demonstrated God's love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, still his enemies, not his neighbor's, Still afar off and and separated from him by our sin. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. He shows us God's love in that. And what does it take if we're going to receive this life? Well, it means that we humble ourselves. We humble ourselves in repentance and acknowledge, I can't do it. We humble ourselves in faith in the one who demonstrates God's love for us. Brothers and sisters, eternal life can only come as a gift of God's mercy, and I hope you know that mercy today. I hope that you're not standing like the lawyer trying to justify yourselves before men as they look upon you and say, oh, I bet they're very fine, upstanding Presbyterian people, aren't they? It's a dangerous road to think that we do it by our own actions and by our own work. Eternal life can only come as a gift of God's mercy, and it can only come as we turn to the Lord in faith and repentance. Let us pray together. O gracious Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would encourage us not only to be compassionate followers of Jesus, but to really know the love that passes all understanding, that's found only in Jesus Christ, our Savior. O Lord, we thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. You have done what we could not do for ourselves. You have justified the ungodly. We thank you that Christ Jesus came into a world where he was rejected and spat upon and cast aside, and yet he gave himself for the lives of his people to gather them to himself, that they would know that there is one in heaven who intercedes for them, who fulfills all that they have not, who gives us a righteousness that is not our own, who gives us a life that we could never gain for ourselves. We thank you for Christ our Savior and pray that you would make us to know him more and more. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We come now to a table which proclaims to us